0: Here's what we're gonna do, we're gonna pray and ask uh, God to open our eyes as we get into his word together and open our hearts as we get into his word together and then we're going to do that. We're gonna get into his word together. So, let's pray. God, we welcome your spirit here this morning. We welcome you, we welcome you, Jesus. We welcome uh, conviction and reminders and refreshment and renewal. Welcome challenges even from you, oh God. And we know that, uh, God, so many of us in this place, we have an understanding of maybe a specific area or or a skill or a gift or an ability, whether it's sports or the marketplace or law or medicine or whatever. But God, in order to understand spiritual things, we need you. We need you to open our eyes. We need you to shine light on on these truths that we're going to talk about this morning. And so we invite you to do that. Open our eyes and open our ears. Now, in Christ's name, the people of God together said, amen. Well, if you've uh, been tracking with us over the last couple of weeks, if you joined us Easter Sunday and last week, you know that we're in a series called Questions. In a series called Questions, and each week, we're just kind of addressing a different question that might come up in regards to Christianity. So here's kind of where we've been On, on Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. We started with the question, who is Jesus? And we spent our entire uh, Sunday morning talking about who Jesus was and who he is and what the Bible claims about him, that he is not just kind of a good teacher, a good guy, but he's Lord and King and he is God incarnate and is the rightful ruler of the universe. And then last week, the, the second question we talked about uh, here in our series is, was, uh, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does that mean? When someone says, I'm a Christian or I'm a Christ follower, or I'm a Jesus follower, What does that mean? And we said that there's two real biblical words used in Acts chapter 2, and it's repent and be baptized. And those two words simply mean a change of mind and a change of identity. A change of mind and a change of identity. So that's uh, what it means to be a Christian. So now we're in week three of this question series, and we're letting one single question kind of guide our time this morning, and we're going to answer it to the best of our ability and and, kind of see it raise even some other questions subsequently. And so the question is this, is Christianity really as crazy as it sounds? Is Christianity really as crazy as it sounds? If if you don't come from a faith background, if you don't come from a religious background, then there might be some values, some beliefs, some practices, some things that we hold really dear to us in this uh, faith system called Christianity, or maybe that we even have in common with other faith systems. We don't have everything in common with every other faith system, but some things we do. And if you don't come from one of those backgrounds at all, you might think, well, this is nuts, like this is crazy. Like the squirrels are running the nut house here, right? The, in, the, the inmates are running the asylum. Christianity is crazy. It's not based on any kind of historical veracity or fact or reason or logic. It's not based on anything. It's kind of this blind, just kind of disconnected faith that doesn't have any grounding in reality. And, and before we answer the question this morning, I, I want to talk a little bit about where this question actually comes from, because I think it's very, very interesting where this question comes from, and, and I, I honestly think this is kind of a legitimate question. I do think, I, I think it's a legitimate question. Is Christianity really as crazy as it sounds? Here's the deal. Uh, the, the, the question that kind of comes up for me is this. If somebody asks me, is Christianity really as crazy as it sounds, I would say no, no, it's not. It's actually a reasoned faith. Yes, it takes faith. It takes a step of faith. But it's, it's reasoned. It's logical. It's based in history. So then my follow-up question would be, where would someone get the crazy idea that Christianity is crazy? If it's a reasoned faith, if it's a logical faith, if it's based in history and actual events, where would someone get the idea that Christianity is crazy? You know where they get it from? From us, Christians. Christians. They get, it, they get it from us. This is where we got to do a little bit of introspective work and a little bit of inward looking here and do some self-evaluation. By and large, the majority of the time, at least in my experience, the majority of people who think Christianity is crazy or theism in general is illogical or things of faith are not reasonable have been around crazy people who espouse those ideas. And the faith isn't crazy, but the people who claim it have stopped engaging their brains. And what happens when people interact with crazy Christians? Well, they just come to the conclusion that the whole thing is just crazy. Uh, allow me to kind of illustrate my point. And Now, I understand that this illustration I'm about to use, and we're going to work through it up here on the screen, it, it's a massive oversimplification. I get it, but I think it will help us this morning as we unpack this question together. So look up here on the screen. Imagine that this line here divides two different levels of discourse, two different levels of conversation, two different levels of dialogue. There's a type of dialogue and a kind of discourse that's going on up here, and then there's a type of dialogue and a kind of discourse that's going on down here. So let's let's start down here. On one side of, of this conversation, you've got what I call crazy Christians. Okay, crazy Christians. and And, and I don't mean that all Christians are crazy. You understand I'm a Christian, right? Everybody understands that? And I think I'm somewhat relatively not crazy. Um, some of you know me and are thinking, actually, you're a lot more crazy than you think. But what, what, what I'm talking about here is is not like, I'm crazy for Jesus, I'm crazy for God, I, you know, I'm born again and I'm excited about Jesus and what he's doing in my life. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is people who claim faith or claim to be Christians that have checked their brain out and, and they refuse to think and they refuse to be reasonable or refuse to be logical. Do you know anyone like this, by the way? Don't nudge the person next to you. That's you, don't do that. But there's some of us out there and I love them; they're wonderful people. I, it's just it is what it is. That's what happens. On the other side of this conversation, you, uh, I, I'm going to say that we have people call, that I will call aggressive atheists. Aggressive atheists. Do you know anybody like this? Aggressive atheists that um, they don't believe in God, but they're trying to convert you to unbelief. It's like you're converting me to something that doesn't exist. That's really strange to me. It's that's a little bit odd. And what happens is, this group of people over here, and I get to, it's a massive oversimplification. I get it. But this group of people over here and this group of people over here start engaging in dialogue. They start engaging in conversation. And this group of people over here kind of digs their heels in and they hold their convictions and this group of people over here kind of dig their heels in and they hold their convictions and these these people are trying to convert these people and these people are trying to convert these people. And what happens is, that they both sides of the conversation conversation criticize the other for being brainless or intellectually dishonest, and yet their rhetorical strategy reveals that both sides of the camp are actually falling into the exact same trap. If you listen to the conversation that's going on between both of these groups of people, and look, I couldn't name names. I'm not going to. And some of these people, like, they write books, and they're on YouTube, and they're on TV, and whatever else. I'm just not going to name names because it's not helpful. But if you listen to the dialogue that's going on between these two groups of people, it's marked by a couple of things. The first thing is it's combative. It's combative. There's, there's name calling going on. You're stupid. No, you're stupid. There's a lot of that kind of going on. Or there's mocking, and th- these guys are mocking these guys for being what they are. These guys are mocking these guys for being what they are. Uh, it, not only is it combative but it's it's hyperbolic it's hyper or it's, sorry it's sensationalized it's sensationalized both sides of the equation are using shocking stories or exciting stories or language at the expense of accuracy in order to provoke public interest or excitement it's sensationalized both sides are using hyperbole They use words like always, all, uh, never, those types of things, and it's hyperbolic. Or, Or they set up straw men. So, what, what I mean by a straw man is this it, it's it's setting up the other side's point of view in an inaccurate way so that it's really easy to defeat and really easy to tear down. So the aggressive atheists on the one side will say, Well, all Christians believe this, and they set Christianity up in a way to tear it down really easily and dismantle it. Or the Christians on the uh, crazy Christians on one side set up atheism and say, Atheism believes this. And it's like, well, atheism doesn't really believe that, but the reason you set it up that way is so it was really easy to tear it down so you could remove this one jenga piece and watch the whole thing come crumbling down that is not a helpful constructive nourishing level of discourse and if you listen to that level of discourse it would cause you to conclude it makes total sense why you've come to this conclusion that christianity is crazy or the christians are crazy because people who are living below the line and having conversation below the line they're crazy but there's an entirely different level of discourse that's going on above the line. And it's what I'm going to call intelligent discourse. Let me define intelligent discourse for us and help us understand what that is. And then and then, watch what I'm going to do. I'm going to show you where Jesus enters in. I'm going to show you how he enters into this picture. So let's define intelligent discourse first. Intelligent discourse is marked by respectful dialogue and questions rather than half-baked cliches that don't hold water. Above the line, both sides of the conversation seek to understand the other side, even though they passionately disagree sometimes. There are informed thinkers on both sides of the equation that that are resolute in their conviction, but they disagree on fundamental issues, but the dialogue is still reasoned, Logical and intellectually honest. Below the line, that conversation below the line is designed for monetization. It's designed for marketing. It's designed to make money. So it sacrifices intellectual honesty and reason for the sake of entertainment and popularity and convenience. And since it's entertaining, popular, and easily accessible because it's all over the media, this is where most of our thoughts of the other side tend to come from. So these guys over here call these guys crazy. And if we come in with this kind of preconceived notion in mind, it just affirms everything we thought from before. And they call these guys crazy and we go, "Oh, they must be crazy." Or these guys over here, are, we come in with this preconceived notion in mind. These guys over here, you know, uh, call these guys names and they mock them and we go, "Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they must be crazy too." But that there's a problem with that. And the problem is this that that dialogue below the line isn't constructive, and it isn't nourishing for our soul. And, and more importantly, it's not where Jesus enters in. He doesn't enter in below the line. He enters in above the line, and we're going to talk about it. Below the line, that level of discourse is kind of like Skittles and orange soda. I mean, it tastes good for a time, but it isn't going to nourish you in the long run. Above the line, it's like chicken and vegetables and water. I mean, it's a little bit boring sometimes, but it's going to nourish you over the long run. Below the line is like Katy Perry and the Kardashians, okay? Above the line is like Beethoven and Van Gogh. Takes a little bit of a sophisticated palate, takes a little bit of training, but once you get it, it really brings deeper nourishment to you. And here's the thing. I love the Kardashians. I really do. I love them as much as the next guy does. Don't you judge me, by the way. Don't you judge me. And I'm, I, I've got my fingers crossed for Chloe and Lamar, let's be honest, okay? But here's the deal. Listen to me. I don't want to stake my eternity on Chloe and Lamar. I hope you don't either. I don't want to stake my eternity on a sensationalized, combative rhetoric. I'm not saying that the Kardashians are sensationalized, combative rhetoric. I'm saying that below-the-line discourse about things of faith is comparable to reality TV. I'd rather stake my eternity on a spirited pursuit of truth. Would you? So the really disappointing part of this situation is that if these folks below the line have shaped your understanding of Christianity, if you've listened to that level of discourse and conversation and it's shaped your understanding of Christianity, then the answer to our question today is this, that Christianity is not as crazy as it sounds, it's crazier because those guys are nuts. What's even more unfortunate is that Christianity is a reasoned faith. It's based in history. It's based in fact. There's actually logic to it and reason. Yes, it's a faith. There's a step of faith that needs to be had, but it's a reasoned faith. And real Christianity lives above the line. Jesus lives above the line. Uh, Real Christianity, and Jesus in particular, seeks to understand the other, engages in honest dialogue, and then respectfully holds his ground. So as a result... Real Christianity is respected in academic circles and social circles and political circles. It garners respect in the marketplace just as much as it does in sacred space. It holds its own in the courtroom just as much as it does in the prayer room because real Christianity operates above the line. Now, here's what I want to do. Now that we've kind of set up These two levels of discourse, you can put that slide back up on the screen. Now that we've kind of set up these two levels of discourse, what I want to show you from Luke chapter 24, and then actually we're going to spend some time in Acts 26 too, even though it wasn't in my notes, but I think it's helpful for us. In Luke 24, I'm going to show you where Jesus enters in up here and not down here. Okay, I'm going to show you where Jesus enters in up here and not down here. And then I'm going to give you three issues, three contemporary examples of places where for Christians, it's going to be really tempting for us to operate down here and to have these conversations, and we need to get up above the line. Okay, so let's watch Jesus do it in Luke chapter 24. If you've got your Bibles, I'll open them up. Luke chapter 24, I just want you to have the text in front of you. If you don't have your Bible, you can use the one in the seat back in front of you. You can, uh, you can look on with your neighbor. You know, They're sitting by you. They like you. They'll be happy to share with you. Luke chapter 24, and we're going to start in verse 13. Let me set up the context before we get there. Uh, This is after Jesus has risen from the dead. He's crucified on Friday, rose from the dead on Sunday, and there were 40 days before he ascended into heaven where he appeared to his disciples and he interacted with them and he ate with them and he appeared to over 500 witnesses. Luke chapter 24 is one of those accounts of Jesus appearing to his disciples. We pick it up in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. Stop there. What's happening here? You've got a couple of Jesus followers of his disciples that were his disciples during his life that are walking on the road to Emmaus. And they're skeptics at this point, understand. They're skeptics of this, but they they experience Jesus. They know Jesus, but this whole thing of risen from the dead and he's the redeemer of Israel, he's the Messiah and all that stuff that go on. Man, I just, I don't know. I, and they're talking about it and trying to work it through. Keep reading. It says, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him, and he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? Now stop there. Jesus is talking to skeptics now. These are these are. His disciples from his life, but they're skeptical as to what's going on. They don't totally grasp it or even totally believe what's happening and what's going on. And instead of engaging in combative rhetoric, like calling them numbskulls or something, instead of engaging in hyperbole and saying stuff like, you guys are always so faithless, instead of engaging in sensationalism or anything below the line, what's the first thing that Jesus does? He asks a question. He asks a question. You understand what he's doing here? He's entering into the conversation. And and we've said that respectful, intelligent, above-the-line discourse is marked by questions. And this is how Jesus enters in by asking questions. Christians, when you're talking to people of different faith backgrounds, people that don't believe the same thing as you do, take a cue from Jesus. Ask questions. Ask a lot of them. And, and when you've exhausted all your questions, ask more questions. Helps you to enter into a conversation, understand where the other person is coming from, such that you can explain your faith in a reasoned way. Non Christians, people who are not Christians in the place, and we know we have a lot of them, the, and that's awesome. I'm so glad that, that you're here. Notice that Jesus, who is like the realest Christian ever, the whole darn thing's named after him, by the way, all right? Christianity, Jesus Christ, that whole thing. Notice that the way Jesus enters into the conversation is above the line. It's intelligent discourse. He asks a question. Keep reading. They stood still looking sad, and one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? Look at that. Another question. So the disciples go on to explain to Jesus, who they think is a stranger at this point, what has gone on in Jerusalem. Namely, they've tried and executed a man for crimes he did not commit. And then they express their disappointment to this man who they think is a stranger because they thought that the guy who was just executed was the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the Redeemer of Israel, who's one of their best friends, believe it or not. Verse 25, keep reading. And he said to them, O foolish ones... And slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Stop there. Now, this is fascinating. This is fascinating to me. Because he calls his disciples or his, his followers, there's a number of them there, not just the apostles. He, he calls them foolish. Now, you might look up there and go, oh yeah, combative rhetoric, name calling, there it is, Jesus. This is not what he's doing here. So uh, here's, here's the reason I know that's not what he's doing here. If there are a couple of words in classical Greek that can be translated fool or foolish. One of them is the word raka. Have you heard that word before? Some of you maybe been around church a little while. Jesus says, don't call your brother raka or you fool. That is not the word that Jesus is using here. That word is an insult. It means dumb. It means brainless. It means stupid. That's not the word Jesus is using here. He uses another Greek word, and that Greek word is anoetos. And it means you're a smart person, but you're not engaging your brain. You have mental faculties, you're just digging your heels in and refusing to use your mental faculties. It's, to use our picture today, here's what Jesus is saying to his disciples. I'm happy to enter into this conversation with you. I'm happy to have this discussion, but here's where we're going to have it. We're going to have it above the line. Where we all engage our brain and think and reason, and I'm going to walk you through it. Keep reading. Keep reading. And says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So here's what Jesus does. He begins in the Old Testament, and he walks these guys through every Old Testament character and event, and he unfolds how each one of those things, including the prophets and all of the scripture, point to him and why he came and all the reasons why he is who he says he is and why his identity is confirmed. Now, some of you in the place might go, Well, that doesn't make any difference to me. Some of you might go, well, I'm Jewish, so that actually would make a lot of difference to me. That would make a lot of sense to me. But for many of us, I would even go so far as to say for most of us, this particular argument that Jesus is employing to convince his disciples would not be convincing for us. However, here's the point. Jesus meets them where they're at. These guys are Jewish that he's talking to, real Jewish. They knew the prophets and Moses and the scriptures. This is what they lived and breathed. This type of argument would make sense to them. This type of reasoning would convince them, and it does. So understand that when Jesus shows up on the scene after the resurrection to prove his identity, he doesn't do a trick. He doesn't, like, juggle knives, you know? Only the Messiah could do this. And now I'm going to light them on fire. Woo! He has to say, look, I've gone into the future, and I've got what's called an iPhone. And I'm going to prove to you my identity as the Son of God with my new iPhone. Right? Right? He doesn't do that either. And he certainly does not engage in below the line discourse. In order to prove his identity, Jesus simply enters into the conversation. He asks a couple of questions, and then he helps his disciples understand things of faith in a respectful and intelligent, reasoned way. Above the line discourse. You with me? Do you see it? Okay, go to Acts 26. Again, it wasn't in my notes, but I think it's important for us to to, to see this. Uh, Turn a few books to your right, a few books of the Bible to your right. Acts chapter 26. It is on page 935 in my Bible, which does not make any difference to you because they're all page different, but whatever. Try 935. Um, Acts chapter 26. Set up the context here. We're going to see it happen again, above the line discourse. The early church begins to unfold and it begins to grow. And a guy named Paul uh, saw before, and he experiences a radical conversion and becomes changes his name to Paul. And Paul is kind of globetrotting all over the Mediterranean world, and he's just telling people about Jesus, telling people about Jesus, telling people about Jesus. And the authorities get wind of this, and they don't like it, so they arrest him. In fact, they beaten him a couple of times, they tried to kill him, all kinds of different things. And this is one of the situations that he's been arrested, and it's towards the end of his life, and he's he's beginning to go through a series of trials with different authorities, some of the Roman imperial authority, some provincial authority, and he's going through a series of trials which will eventually lead to his beheading, at least according to church history in Rome. So one of the guys that he comes to trial before is a guy named Festus, which if you're uh, pregnant and looking for a really great name for your kid, choose Festus. Festus, that's awesome. And and Festus does this little conversation with Paul, and he's like, nah, I'm gonna bring you before this other king, a guy named Agrippa, another great name for a child, by the way. So Paul is in chains now. He's been arrested for his faith. He's been beaten almost within an inch of his life here. And watch the conversation that he has with King Agrippa, and watch Paul stay above the line. Watch him. Acts 26, verse 1. It says, so Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. In other words, what are you doing here? They're putting you on trial. Talk to me. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. Listen to this. Listen to how, listen to how kind and engaging this level of dialogue is. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa. I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews especially because you're familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Now, if you and I were in chains and we were given an opportunity to defend ourselves, do you think we would use words like, therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently? I certainly wouldn't. I guarantee you I'd get below that line that quick with combative rhetoric, with hyperbole, with straw men, whatever I could do. But Paul refuses to live below the line. He engages in intelligent discourse, and he begins to unfold to King Agrippa all the reasons why. He tells his own story, and he works from some of the Old Testament texts, and he walks King Agrippa through this step-by-step process, this well-reasoned, intelligent, honest, intellectually honest argument for the identity of Jesus. And watch, this is amazing to me. Watch what, because King Agrippa is not stupid. He knows exactly what Paul's trying to do. He's trying to convert him, isn't he? He's trying to convert him. So look what, look what King Agrippa says in verse 27. Um, Paul says this to King Agrippa. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe, which is awesome. It's like so bold on Paul's behalf, right? Or on Paul's part. Verse 28, and Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, do you think you can persuade me to become a Christian? <laughs> I love that. I love that. Like Agrippa knows what he's doing. Look, I know you're trying to convert me, and I get it. Like, you know, show's over, right? Look what Paul says in verse 29. And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am. That means become a Christian, become baptized in Jesus, except for these chains. You know what he says to Agrippa? Whether it's this conversation or a 1,000 conversations over the next 20 years, I'm here with you on the long haul, buddy. I'm happy to engage in above-the-line discourse for as long as it takes for you to experience Jesus like I have. We can do without the chains part. You don't have to do that. But, but, but I want you to repent, change your mind and be baptized, experience a new identity in Jesus. And I'm not going to use the trinity of trying to get my way, fear, guilt, and manipulation. (laughs) I'm not going to use hyperbole. I'm not going to use intellectually dishonest arguments. I will engage in conversation and reasonable discourse with you for as long as it takes for you to experience Jesus as I have. This kind of discourse, above the line, honest, respectful dialogue happens all over the scripture. Those are just two examples, one from the life of Jesus and one from the life of Paul. Now, here's my encouragement to you today, and then we're gonna take three examples and talk about it. Non-Christians, atheists, agnostics, uh, those who are skeptical, those who are investigating things of faith. When you listen uh, to people talk about things of faith and when you read people and and when you engage in these conversations, Please listen to the voices that are living above the line. Please don't listen to those voices below the line. Listen to people that are reasoned. I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that here shortly. Reasoned, logical, honest patient, ask a lot of questions, understand your point of view, enter into the conversation. Yes, they're trying to convert you, and yes, they'll say things like, hey, I'm trying to convert you, but whether it's this conversation or 20 years of conversations, I'm here with you over the long haul. That's people that are living above the line. So if you don't know Jesus, please listen to those voices. Number two, Christians in the place, please, I beg of you, They think we're crazy because sometimes we check our brains out. So let's start living above the line, shall we? Let's start engaging in intellectual, honest discourse and dialogue and conversation that respects the other, that doesn't mock someone's point of view, that doesn't call someone else a name because they come from a different faith background than we do or no faith background at all. That's just absurd, and it's not the Jesus way. Let's live above the line. Three quick examples of places you might feel tempted to get below the line and do something that's not going to be good for the name of Jesus over the time. Not going to be good for the name of Jesus. Three examples where you might feel tempted to do that just so you can kind of keep an eye out when you have these conversations. Okay, the first one is this, just in theism in general. Just theism in general. Is there a God or is there not a God? And you start to have these conversations and you say to somebody, Well, yes, there is a God. Well, how do you know? Because the Bible says so. Okay, it's a little bit combative and and not terribly helpful for that person that's investigating theism. And by the way, the Bible doesn't actually say so. The Bible just assumes so. The Bible doesn't defend God. It just, just God is and gets after it. So when someone is investigating things of faith, the the, the way to have above the line discourse is say, well, talk to me about your background and your experience with God. Why have you chosen atheism? Why have you chosen uh, to be an agnostic? Or why why are you still withholding uh, belief in God? Talk to me about that. Uh, Help me understand that. And then once you understand, you enter into above the line discourse where you say, well, here's what I think. Well, here's the moral argument, and here's the you know argument from aesthetic, or here's the here's the teleological argument, and you just walk them through the process in a respectful, honoring, intellectually honest way. One other, or a couple other uh, examples of places where you might feel tempted to live below the line when it comes to engaging in conversations about things of faith is creation. Creation. Uh, one of the things that that I hear people do when when they talk about the creation account in Genesis chapter one and two is say things like, you know, the earth is 10,000 years old, God created in six literal days, and then they dig their heels in, and they say, no way, no how, no other options. Now, if that's your view, that's awesome. That's awesome. I've got a lot of friends that are very, very smart, much smarter than me, and most definitely live above the line, that hold that view with you. But do you understand that there are five or six or seven even other interpretations of the creation account that fall within the realm of historical, biblical, Christian orthodoxy? You might not agree with those views. You don't have to. You don't have to. There's a couple of like key points, like God created all things, God created all things for his glory. There's a couple of foundational things, but there's conversations ongoing, and there's different ways that you can interpret the creation account. There's the gap theory, and then there's day-age theory, and then there's young earth and old earth, and there's all kinds of different things, and they're outlined in books, and people talk about them in above-the-line discourse. So if you hold that view, that's fine. That's awesome. That's great for, that's great for you, and my view is great for me. In fact, I'm kind of juries out for me, to be honest, but that's beside the point. Like, the point is, I want to engage in above-the-line discourse. I want to engage in chicken and vegetables and water that actually nourish my soul and draw me closer to Jesus over the long haul, as opposed to, you know, you walk away and you go, well, I showed them, didn't I? Yeah, you showed them that Christians are crazy, and they're probably not going to come to church because they think that you disrespect them, which you probably do because you mocked them, and you called them a name, and you acted like their view wasn't important at all. It's funny, because there's a lot of really, 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 really smart people Actually, a guy named, uh, you know, people say that faith and science are at odds. You know, science disproves faith and faith disproves science. They can't live together. One of the smartest, most innovative scientists on the planet. He mapped the human genome, the human DNA, under uh, the Clinton administration, is a guy named Francis Collins. Some of you like Francis Collins, some of you don't. Beside the point, he's one of the most innovative and smartest scientists on the planet today. Not only is he a theist, but he's a Christ follower. He's smarter than all of us, combined, probably. Like, it's actually reasoned faith. It's actually logical faith. So let's engage in above-the-line discourse. Here's, here's another way. In obedience. In obedience. It, we can be tempted to engage in combative rhetoric and, and hyperbole and straw men and all kinds of things. Not so much when we're talking about whether or not to obey. Should we or should we not obey? We should. Conversation's over. Here's where I feel like we start to fall below the line. When people ask the question, why? Why would I obey God? And our answer sometimes, when we're living below the line, is like, well, because the Bible says so. (laughs) The Bible says so. Again, a little bit combative and and not terribly, like, you know, helpful and constructive and persuasive. But what what if we said something like this? What if we said something like this? Well... Here's the reason why I obey, or at least to the best of my ability. Because I believe in a God that created all things, and he created me. And he created me in his image. So he knows how I work best. And he created me to flourish. He created me to bring him glory. He created me to maximize my own potential. You know why? Because he's awesome. And he wants to get glory. And he deserves it. And then what he did was he created some do's and don'ts in order to help me maximize my potential, in order to help me flourish, in order to become really the most human I can possibly become because he knows, because he created me. And so, what he's given me is some restrictions, some areas that I need to exercise self discipline and self control in order to step into his best and greatest for me. And in the meantime, I, I have to exercise some restrictions and discipline. This happens in every other area of life. For example, we've got one of our elders, a guy named Tim. He shared his testimony before up here, and he's a very, very, very smart guy, very smart guy. And he has a PhD in violin performance. And he has, um, what are the little trophies that they give good musicians? Grammys. Yeah, he's got one of those too. He was nominated for four, as a matter of fact, and won one. Now, do you think Tim in his whole life has just kind of thrown off all restrictions and self-discipline? No. He's engaged in restrictions and discipline. He's disciplined himself in order to become the maximum potential musician he could possibly be, in order to step into God's best for him, in order to step into the biggest and greatest thing, it's how he's really created, in, in order to To kind of flourish to the most he could, or to the maximum potential that he could flourish. Now, Tim obeys God and he, you know, practices violin. Okay, same thing. But take that analogy, take that metaphor, and transition into spiritual things. This is why we obey. This is why we engage in some level of self-discipline. This is why we restrict ourselves from certain things and spend our less time here and more time here and no money there and all our money here or whatever because we believe that God created us and in order to maximize our potential, we do what he says to do. See, that's like a reasoned faith. That's actually actually somebody who walked me through that process and go, okay, maybe I disagree, but at least that makes sense to me. The Bible says so. Okay, great, that's great, but it just... But for most people, that doesn't make sense. you got to walk them through it. you got to engage in above-the-line discourse. One more verse, and then we'll be done. In the Old Testament, <clears throat> God's people, the nation of Israel, had, had walked away from him a whole lot of times. And we use that word at church, they've walked away from him. You know, God says that they, they actually acted like a whore, is what he says. They acted like a harlot. Uh, they, they rejected him. They went and did their own thing. They kind of said, you know, God, suck an egg. We're going to go do our own deal. And w- in one of those instances, in fact, in many of those instances, God sent a prophet to call them back. In this particular case, the prophet's name was Isaiah. And Isaiah shows up on the scene, and he begins to have this conversation with the nation of Israel, and he begins to call them back to God, call them back to God. In fact, in the uh, early parts of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 1, the, the language that's used is of a father and, and his child, I I love you. I care for you. You are my creation. You are my people. I love you more than anything. And you've you've run away from me. You've kind of bucked the system, and you've kind of done your own thing. Come back to me. Come back to me. Come back to me, because I love you and I care for you. And watch in Isaiah uh, chapter one verse eighteen. Watch how God the Father invites the nation of Israel back to the table of conversation. He says, "Come now, let us reason together." Isn't that interesting? No tricks, no manipulation, no fear, no guilt. Like, come, come sit. In, in the context of Isaiah chapter 1, it, it, picture a father and a son sitting down at a kitchen table over a cup of coffee and saying, all right, let's talk this out. Let's talk this out. Like, I'm not going to smack you around. I'm not going to ground you or punish you. Like, you and I, let's talk this out. In fact, the, the tense of this verb uh, in Old Testament Hebrew is cohortative, is one of the tenses uh, that, that we talk about in Old Testament Hebrew, and it means that we're doing this together. That's why when it's translated into English, that word together is included there. It's you and I together. I'm not going to sit down and, you know, point a finger at you and you listen to me for the next hour. God says, let you and I sit down and discuss this, nation of Israel. And and the tense of this verb is volitional. That means that living above the line in intelligent, reasoned discourse is a choice. It's a choice. And watch the result when the nation of Israel accepts God and takes God up on his invitation. Come now, let us reason together. Keep going. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. God's invitation and his end game in Isaiah chapter 1 is the same as Paul's end game in Acts 26, same as Jesus' end game in Luke chapter 24. Let's sit down and talk this out in the end game is that you would experience renewal and life and restoration in Jesus. Not fear, guilt, manipulation, not combative rhetoric, not hyperbole, not name calling, not mockery, not straw man, not any of that stuff, but respectful, intelligent discourse in order to to lead you to a place of repentance and faith. That's the Jesus way. Non-Christians in the room, if you're listening to Christians who are living below the line, God loves them. God's got grace for them. I love them very much too, but it might sound like our faith is a little bit crazy. But if you listen to Christians above the line, above the line, if you listen to the voices above the line, it's a lot more reasoned faith. Uh, some of you in the place might be an atheist, you might be a non-Christian, you might be skeptical, and you might say, Luke, actually, I would really love to listen to some voices that are living above the line. And in order to help you do that, I actually brought a copy of a book this morning. I gave one out in the first service. I've got another copy of it today. The book, called, the book is called uh, The Reason for God, and the uh, subtitle is Belief in an Age of Skepticism. It's a New York Times bestseller. It's by a guy named Tim Keller, who is absolutely a voice that lives above the line and engages in an intellectual, responsible, intellectually honest discourse and dialogue. He doesn't mock the other side. He doesn't name call. He just walks you through, step by step, his reasons for faith and belief in an age of skepticism. If you are a Christian and you want a copy of that book, order it on Amazon. If you are a non-Christian or, or an atheist or an agnostic and you're investigating things of faith and you want someone who lives above the line to walk you through that and help you understand, uh, I will give you that copy this morning absolutely for free. Okay, So at least you know, somebody gave you something when you came to church. So if you have the guts to come up and talk to a pastor afterwards, it'll be great. And uh, I'll put a book. I don't, mean to make, I don't mean to make light of that at all. I just I want to I help you and equip you to listen to some voices that live up, up, up above the line. Christians... That's my admonition this morning. Get out from below the line. When we engage in dialogue, let's get up above the line. It's funny, in the early church, um, one of the reasons that they thought Christians were crazy is, is, is because of what we're about to do right now, and it's received communion. In fact, there were some authorities, some Roman authorities, and some, uh, some, some Roman voices in, in the empire that engaged in below-the-line discourse and name-calling and mockery in order to tell, Christians, or to tell people that Christians were crazy. They, they would say stuff like, you guys know they're drinking blood in there and eating people's flesh in there? That's what people would say. And Christians like, no, we're not. At least not this Sunday. No, we're not. We're not. We're not. What we're about to do is receive a little bit of bread and a little bit of juice, and they're representatives, they're symbols, just like my wedding ring is. And it represents, and it's it's symbolic of a day, of a point in time, of a relationship. These elements that we're about to partake uh, together, that we're about to receive together, are representations and symbols of that moment where Jesus rescued and redeemed us and gave his body and his blood for us. As we prepare our hearts, the band is going to come up and lead us in a song. It sings the gospel from start to finish. The ushers is gonna come forward and distribute those elements. I invite you to take a little piece of bread and a little cup and hold them. We'll partake all together here in a few moments. If, If you're not a Christian today, if you haven't come to Christ in repentance and faith and had a change of mind and a change of identity, I would invite you to pass on this part of the service. But for those of us who, uh, if you call yourself a Christian, we practice open table here. It doesn't mean you don't have to be a ministry partner here. You don't have to be a regular part of our church. You don't even have to attend here. If you call yourself a Christian and if you claim the name of Christ, you're welcome to participate with us in communion. Let's pray together as we prepare our hearts. God, we love you and we wanna represent you to the best of our ability. God, if people think that we're crazy, just as Paul said in Corinthians, would they know that we're out of our mind for you? That it's because of your inexpressible, matchless, incomprehensible love and grace for us that cause us to be radical in our pursuit of you. But God, we also wanna live above the line when it comes to dialogue and conversations with those who don't know you, that we would just represent you really well, that we would be kind and gentle in our response, that we would be seasoned with salt, as the scripture says, that we would ask lots of questions, that we would seek to understand the other perspective, and that we would hold uh, convictions close to our heart and walk with people over the long haul, if need be, in a gentle, intellectually honest, respectful way. God, we come before you now in a moment of worship and adoration, a moment of mystery. We stand in awe, God, of the fact that you would send your son for us, bled and died and rose from the dead and now intercedes on our behalf. Thank you, Jesus, that our sin is separated from us as far away as the east is from the west, that it was once like scarlet now, it's white as wool. We love you, we praise you, we prepare our hearts now to come to the communion table together. In Christ's name,